9. This is God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come before your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit for understanding. Illumine our hearts and our minds that our lives may be shaped by your word, the very words of life. And will you, God, teach us what it is to follow you in the midst of our world today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Roughly two years ago, James Hunter, he's a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, published a very important book. It's a sociology book, so not many people have found it incredibly accessible, but I'll summarize some of its contents for you. The book is entitled To Change the World, and in it, Hunter is talking about American culture and society and where we are today and the dilemma that Christians face in the world. He acknowledges that our culture and society is changing very rapidly. It's been a process that's been building for several hundred years, he would argue, but now we are seeing the fruits of it. Listen carefully to what he says. In the present world order, many, if not most, of the principles Christians most esteem have come under fundamental challenge. These challenges have been expressed intellectually, educationally, and artistically, but also commercially, through advertising and the range of entertainment media. Not least, all of these challenges have also been expressed legally and politically. Hunter devotes one entire chapter to showing these challenges, and he then discusses the Christian response to those challenges. And so we're acknowledging those challenges this morning, that we live in a culture and a society that does not share fundamental convictions about the gospel, that there has been a change, where even if America was not as Christian, there was a shared conviction of a certain moral platform about the way our society would conduct its life. Hunter is saying that has changed. And so he says now it's interesting to note the tone of how Christians respond to it. And friends, that's the point this morning that Paul is writing to a Philippian church that's under pressure. They're under external pressure from a world that doesn't share their convictions about Jesus. And so they see the world differently than those who live inside the church. And there is pressure put on, and so how do we respond? There's many different responses available. Stephen Baldwin, who's a, an actor, he happens to be a Christian, he says, we are the hands of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm putting my boxing gloves on. Is that the response? 
Or is it just simply to accommodate to the culture around us? What do we do in the middle of a society that doesn't agree with our fundamental convictions? In our passage this morning, there are five things. I'm making up ground for two sermons. Sorry. It'll be short. Five things that we see in the passage about how we respond and what the Christian response is to being a minority in its society and culture where the church finds itself. First, in verse 4, what we see is that we're not to lose perspective. Jesus is on his throne. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is not a command to put on a plastic smile, to plaster that smile upon your face despite the fact that everything around you is in chaos. That when Paul commands us to rejoice, he is playing on this larger theme that God has won the great holy war and installed Jesus at his right hand, that he's conquered sin and death, and Jesus has been given the name that is above all names. This is the language of chapter 2. And so Paul then, in response to this great day of salvation has been accomplished and realized, commands the church to rejoice. That this is the horizon that the church lives looking out upon, is the reign of Jesus, that he's conquered our sins, that now in heaven we're awaiting for him. Look what he says at the end of chapter 3, in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Everything has been subjected to Jesus who's alive from the dead. And he will return to raise bodies and recreate the world. That's why Paul says rejoice. Remember, Paul himself is in prison at this point. And he commands us to rejoice because the great day of salvation has arrived. That the pivotal moment in the history of the world is not awaiting. That has already happened in Christ. Now, several years ago, when I was a a young intern, I was given a list of books to read, and it was a leadership class that I was taking. And so my mentor, Sandy Wilson, handed me the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was resentful of being handed that book because already for about a decade, I had resisted reading it. It was just simply too popular. Ten million people have bought it. Why did I exactly need to read this book? And then I was humbled because I began to read the book and recognize why ten million people had bought it. It was a good book. One of the things that stuck with me out of this book is one of the chapters. He says that you have to begin with the end in mind. He says, listen, uh, listen to this. To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. And friends, this is what Paul is doing when he calls us to rejoice. He's bringing us into this bigger story of the end. And the end is the reign of Jesus Christ over all things, the reconciliation of heaven and earth, the world being made new, dead bodies being raised, sin being removed from creation. That's the end and it shapes the present. We already celebrate it, even though our world is still riddled with sin and it's still present, but the victory's been won. And so the first step for us in the middle of society that doesn't share convictions about the gospel 
is not lose perspective. Whatever the society does doesn't change the reality that Jesus is king, that he's Lord, that he's reigning over all things. There's no election that changes that. There's no cultural shift. There's nothing that can happen. There's no prison. There is nothing like death that can stop the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's established reality. So we don't lose perspective. Secondly, we respond gently to opposition, not vindictively. At times people struggle with this passage because it seems that it's just staccato commands one after the other. Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And so people ask, what does all this have to do with one another? Well, it is the context of persecution where the church is facing pressure in an unbelieving world that pulls all this together. And the word for reasonableness here, we struggle to translate into English, and at different points in the New Testament, it's also translated gentleness. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the gentleness of Jesus, which could also be translated reasonableness of Jesus. And the word is typically used in context where retaliation is the expected response. And instead of retaliation, there's a kind response. And so what Paul is calling us here to is a gentleness, and let it be known to everyone, especially when you're being maligned and misunderstood, your position's being characterized, and you're very prone to be defensive. And you see yourself actively becoming the minority and marginalized. He doesn't say get angry. What does he say? Let your gentleness be known to everyone. That takes an extraordinary amount of self-control. Especially perhaps when the accusations are costing you something. Or when you see that it's going to cost your children something. It takes an extraordinary amount of self-control. And so where do we find the resources for that? Paul says it in the next small phrase, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Or oftentimes this is translated, the Lord is near. Why can we be gentle? Why can we not take out our vindication and wrath on others? Because the Lord is near. And what does he mean? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your phones, do whatever you need to do. Um, to Psalm 145. This theme appears throughout the Psalms, ingrained into Paul's spirituality. In verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's calling on God. He's near. He's near to bring deliverance and salvation. That our Lord Jesus is reigning and he will soon return. And did you notice the theme of God's nearness? That it brings justice. 
It establishes rightness, righteousness. It makes the world right. And so judgment is a part of his showing up. And justice is a part of his showing up. And friends, our call and our great task is to be in self-control because we're not cut out for that job. We're not proficient to establish justice. That we can't do it. That we don't know the whole case. And so when we live with a, a vindictive spirit and we work to establish justice, when we're responding to a culture and society that may be marginalizing the Christian faith, our response will always be a half measure. That we're to entrust ourselves to God. It's the same instruction that Paul gives the church in Romans 12. And friends, this is to be our response in gentleness, in meekness. It doesn't mean that we roll over. It doesn't mean that we can't dialogue. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for public discourse. But it does mean that we're kind. That we don't characterize our enemies. That we don't simply seek to do to them what has been done to us. That's not the Christian way. We respond gently to opposition. One of my favorite novels is The Count of Monte Cristo. And the reason it's one of my favorites is I read it at an important moment where I was myself struggling with not retaliating against injustice. Alexander Dumas writes of Edwin, Edmond Dantes. He's a Frenchman, and he is wronged. He is sent to prison wrongfully so someone could win his wife or his to-be wife. He takes her and has his own family. He's exiled to an island. He escapes, and he comes back to exact vengeance. His life is consumed with paying those back who wronged him. It's fascinating because at the end of the book, after he's paid back every one of his enemies, he regrets it. He writes a letter to his friend Morrill. Listen to what he says. Tell the one who is going to watch over you, Morrill, to pray for a man who, like Satan, believed for one moment he was the equal of God, but who now acknowledges in all humility that in God alone is supreme power and infinite wisdom. Her prayers will perhaps soothe the remorse in the depths of his heart. Live and be happy, and never forget that until the day comes when God will reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these words, wait and hope. And the entire point of the novel has arrived. That vengeance, retaliation, it leads to emptiness. It leads to remorse. It leads to guilt. That it's not the Christian path to humility. Ours is to submit ourselves to God and entrust ourselves to His judgment that He will do what's right. That He will make it just. That our part is to be gentle. To be kind especially when we feel the pressure. Now, the third thing that we find in responding to the pressures of a society that doesn't agree with our Christian convictions is that we tamper down the inevitable anxieties with prayer. When you simply live in a different way from the world around you, when you're going against the grain, when you're paddling upstream, there will be pressure. It will come in a thousand different forms. 
We can't predict exactly what that looks like for each of you, but you will feel it. It simply is inevitable when you're going against the grain. And friends, the thing that happens to us as we experience that pressure is anxiety is prone to rise. In Philippi, there was probably some great cost associated with being Christian. What were people worried about? The same things you are. These are not super Christians. They're sinners who've been made right with God through Jesus. They had families. They had futures. They had jobs. They were worried about the impact of their Christian faith on all these things. There was some argument in the community going on. There was a lot to be anxious about. Ernst Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And in that book, he's actually dying. He's on his deathbed. He's writing about anxiety being one of the fundamental things that directs and drives human life. And he says, you know, the, what we call the healthy or sane person is someone who has blinders on. We call the insane person the person without blinders. And he makes a case that the insane person is more in touch with reality because they know all the threats of life around them. They know how chaotic the world is. They know how scary a place is, and it's made them literally lose their mind. It's an interesting case. But friends, what Paul calls us to do is tamper down our anxieties, not by putting blinders on to pretend that it doesn't exist, but to acknowledge all the anxieties, the fragility of life, of what it means to be a Christian in a world that doesn't agree, how provocative it is to say Jesus is king and he's Lord over all. It's crazy. He's up from the dead, ruling over everything. He'll subject it all to himself. That's the truth of reality. So, of course, a world around you is not going to agree. Why are we so surprised at times? And when the anxiety strikes and when it begins to drive down, we don't just say, don't sweat the small stuff. But Paul's admonition is this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we don't put the blinders on and act like it doesn't exist and get tunnel vision, but rather acknowledging all the anxiety, all the fragility, all the stuff that is on the line, we present our requests to God with thanksgiving. We pray. That that's the Christian posture in the middle of this pressure. And what happens? Perhaps in one of the more poetic and beautiful lines in Scripture, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Imagine the man under house arrest saying that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. A man under guard, being detained, being confined by a Roman guard, saying, no, the peace of God will guard you. It will confine you. It will detain you. And friends, this is not a simplistic formula that just pray and you'll have peace. 
But it is in a life yielded in prayer that practices prayer, submitting itself to God, casting your anxieties and cares upon the Lord, as Psalm 55 said, that the life lived in that direction experiences and knows the peace of God in the middle of all uncertainty and chaos, in the middle of all opposition and pressure. So this is available to us when we come to God in prayer. And in the middle of pressure, prayer is one of the first places the Christian turns. Perhaps before political activism, perhaps before any other thing, not that any of that is bad or foreboding, but prayer is the place we go. So we tamper down our anxieties with prayer. It's the third way of dealing with pressures in an unbelieving world. Fourth, we seek to recognize virtue within our society, practicing the best of its values. Look with me in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Guys, this is a standard list of Greco-Roman virtues. You could have found any Greco-Roman philosopher writing these words. There's nothing unique to the Bible or to Paul about them. And these Philippian Christians who were converted knew that. And so what is Paul saying? He's calling them to reflect on and to appreciate the virtues of the unbelieving world around them. That yes, the world around you does not agree. They do not share convictions in the gospel with you. And there is great sin and there is injustice in that world, but the way to respond to that world is not simply to reject it, but it is to recognize the good parts of it. Where does it have virtue? And excel in that. Friends, this is an apologetic response to an unbelieving world. It's to build up a character that that world recognizes. It's to find the place where that world's values intersect with the Bible's values. And to work those two together, that's the challenge, is to find what's just, to find what's pure, to find what's lovely, to understand what the culture and society around us values, and to work with that, to affirm it. But friends, when we feel the pressure and we know the cost, we're oftentimes filled with resentment and anger where we struggle to interact with the culture at all. And rather, what Paul's causing, calling these Philippian Christians to is to recognize what is just, what is good in Philippi, and to get on board with it. And it's perhaps your best line of apologetics and defense that you can show for what's being a Christian. When we consider our own society, the culture that we live in, we know it's a place that prizes justice for the marginalized. And so what are examples of this? What are ways that we get on board with that? Well, it's being involved with things that the Bible also encourages. Care for the poor. Meeting practical needs. One of the great examples of this in Christ Church's life is the food pantry. 
Friends, those are things that someone who doesn't share your convictions in the gospel could look at and say, that's good. Now, they may detest what we do when we confess our sins, but what they can say is what goes on across the street on Saturday is good. And that's the right path. That is what Paul is talking about here. He's inviting us into that kind of life. And the final thing, the way that Paul encourages us to respond to the pressures of a world that doesn't agree, is found in verse 8. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He doesn't just drop you off and figure out what those who don't believe around you find virtuous. He then also calls the church to reflect on what they've learned and received and heard and seen in him. Everything that he's preached, everything that he's laid out. And so he adds the specifically Christian element to ethics here. That our obligations, our responsibilities don't just stop at finding where the world around us and the Bible connect, that also we're to deeply reflect upon the Scriptures and what God calls us to as His people. What we have learned and received and heard and seen. And what is that? The center of this letter is found in chapter 2 in verse 3 through 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to give the example of Christ, who did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of death. And then he's been given the name that is above every name. And then Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 to give examples. Timothy, Epaphroditus, that they were men who were downwardly mobile, who lived in sacrificial, self-giving, that they laid down their lives, that they were examples of humility. That's what Paul taught. That's what they received from him. And then in chapter 3, Paul gives his own litany of the ways his life has been sacrificed. That's what they learned from Paul. And friends, that's what we're invited into. We're invited to pursue the humble path of a sacrificial life. And in the middle of a world that doesn't share convictions in the gospel, that is the way God invites us to live. To live a sacrificial life, exalting Jesus in our way of life, not just in our words. Yes, we trust him for salvation, and then he works out this, his life within us. And he invites us into this path of humility. And so are we going to be downwardly mobile? Will we respond to the society around us in resentment and anger? Will we be mad about what's lost? Will we struggle to accept our minority status? Or can we be like the Philippians? who were such a minority that they didn't even come up on the demographic reporting in Rome. They were such a minority that it was laughable. And friends, can we be like them? Can we tamper down our anxieties with prayer? Can we recognize the virtues of the world around us? Also knowing the problems, not just being critics, though, 
Can we live in that humble path? Can we rejoice that Jesus is king no matter what's going on around us? This is what God invites us into in the middle of an unbelieving world. Not just anger at that world. Ultimately love for it and showing it the way to life, which is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because in our own cultural moment, we can easily get lost and we lose the way to be your witnesses in the world. And so we pray that you will teach us to rejoice. We ask that you'll teach us to tamper our anxieties in prayer, that we be gentle in response to those who oppose, that we would know how to affirm what is good around us and that we would practice the way of life of being humble and a servant, not looking to our own interest. Empower us with your spirit. Convince us of the great victory of Jesus. And may we long for his world to come. And may we live in such a way today that makes it present. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.